Well, welcome once again. My name is Jeremiah. I'm one of the pastors here at Westbridge, and it's awesome to have you with us. I want to say hello to everybody here and everybody who is uh, participating in our online campus and joining us through that venue. And a big shout out to our microsite in Big Lake as well. Uh, awesome to have you guys with us. Uh, today, we're in part three of a series called This Beautiful Mess. And we're wrapping up this series today. And the whole idea behind this series is that when you think about uh, the relationships in our lives, it is the people in our lives that make life worth living, right? It's the relationships that make life uh, full of meaning and substance and purpose. And the truth is that while the relationships in our lives are the most beautiful parts of our lives, they also uh, can be the simultaneously the most messy part of our lives. They're the parts that we love the most and the parts that can also simultaneously cause us the most pain. And so during this series, we can give you some practices or some habits or some tools that will help us to make our relationships a little bit more beautiful and a little bit less messy. Uh, that uh, in this craziness of relationships, uh, that would be the goal. And this is supposed to be something that is a specialty for the church. Because the founder of the church, Jesus, famously said these words to his or, uh, followers uh, right before his uh, arrest and before his execution. He said this, A new command I give you, love one another. As I have loved you, so you must love one another. By this, everyone will know that you are my disciples if you love one another. And so this is supposed to be what the church of Jesus is famous for, that we are so good at loving others well. And this is supposed to be the distinguishing mark of followers of Jesus. This is how you're supposed to know that there's a church in the community, is that there is a group of people who are so good at loving others. They're so good at loving others well. And while that's through the, throughout history, what has attracted people to the church is that there's a group of people who love really, really well. At the same time, this is also one of those commands that is very, very easy for us to lose track of and to lose sight of. It's very easy for us to sort of nod in agreement during service and walk out the doors and not love very well. And it's a lot easier for us as Christians to make church about our services and our theology than it is about putting this into practice and loving others well. And so uh, during this series, we're talking about uh, the words that we speak to each other. We talked about that the first week. Uh, last week, we talked about the conflicts that we have with one another. And we're talking about the narratives that we tell about each other. And that if we could begin or possibly even resume or perhaps even accelerate some simple practices, it would actually make our marriages better. It would make our parenting better. Uh, it would probably make our workplace more productive and more friendly, our neighborhoods more friendly, and we would have a more united and less divided community. And more importantly, if you're a follower of Jesus, we would have the opportunity to be famous for what Jesus wants us to be famous for, and that is to love others like Jesus has loved us. And so we've talked about the words we speak to one another. We've talked about the, the, the uh, conflicts that we have with one another. And today we're going to tackle the narratives that we tell about each other. And so just to kick us off, here's what a narrative is. It's simply this, a story that connects and explains events or experiences. It's a story that connects or explains an event or an experience. So we have an experience, and then we write a story about that experience to ourselves to sort of explain what that experience was, to explain what that event was, what just occurred. And did you know that our brains are literally writing narratives all the time? It's how our brains work. They write these stories. And after years and years of study, neurologists have gained some insights into how the brain works and how the brain functions. And did you know that your brain is constantly looking for ways to save you time and energy? 
Your brain is constantly trying to figure out how do I take a mental shortcut to get to the point where I need to be. In fact, your brain is constantly doing these two things. The first one is probabilistic learning. It's, it's always learning probabilities. And so when you have one experience, your brain learns that the probability that that experience is going to happen again, and it sort of logs that for you. And then you have one experience, and then your brain has, goes, okay, the probability that if you do this, this is going to happen, your brain remembers that so that you don't have to run that whole diagnostic in the same situation next time that hopefully you'll just recognize it and your brain will go, oh, mental shortcut. Here's the probability that if you do this, this is what will happen. So there's uh, probabilistic learning and then there's pattern learning. You're constantly detecting patterns like associating cause and effect and storing those for a quick future reference and so that you don't have to run that diagnostic all over again. Both of these practices are where our assumptions come from. It's, it's because our brain is constantly writing these narratives. And it's our brain going, oh, yeah, this is one of those situations. Okay, we know, we've seen this before. Oh, this is one of those deals. Got it. Okay, this is one of those things. Okay, yep, we, we've been here before. We know what the outcome of this is. So uh, think no more, right? Mental shortcut. We've already got this locked in. We know how this goes. And your brain does this with everything. It's why you like some dogs and you don't like other dogs because your brain has written a narrative about cute, cuddly dogs and a different narrative about scarier, uglier looking dogs. You're like, you just called dogs ugly. Some of them are ugly. It's just a fact. It's why some foods make your mouth water and some foods uh, cause you to have a gag reflex. It's why uh, when you got sick at that one restaurant, even though it had nothing to do with that restaurant, you just happened to pick up a stomach bug that day, you never want to go back to eat at that restaurant. Because your brain just re it recognizes the pattern and you just go, uh, I've written a story to explain that event and the story that my brain has written for me about that event is that that restaurant makes me sick. And so you never go back there. Or at least you don't go back for a, for a while, right? And it's how every single person in this room, every single one of us can sometimes make a snap decision about a movie preview, uh, about music that we've barely listened to, about a deal that we see uh, in, uh, when we're shopping, and we can just immediately make this snap decision and say, nope, that's not for me. Nope, I don't want to see that. Nope, that's not my favorite. Nope, I don't want to buy that. And we can make that snap decision because your brain has already written a narrative about those things. Your brain's going, oh, we know this. We, we, we've seen this before. Think no more. Mental shortcut. The brain function uh, to, to do that is actually pretty amazing, and it's, it's massively helpful in everyday life. When it comes to just routine tasks and ordinary decisions and just established habits in your life, it's, it's incredibly helpful. It saves us all kinds of time. But these are not the only things that we create narratives about. Unfortunately, we do the same thing with people. Uh, just like with other things, our brains naturally try to make shortcuts for understanding other people. It's kind of like we've got these cue cards. And we go, oh, okay, uh, I know what this person is because I've got the information for him. My, my, my brain has seen this before, so I know exactly what to think about this person. And we've got the talking points and all the different types of people that we've observed in the world. And we've got, you know, different cue cards for all the different people that we've seen, the different people that we've come into contact with. And so we just know, all right, uh, when we talk about personality tests, maybe. And you're like, okay, what's your Enneagram number? And that's a real popular, uh, you know, personality profile right now. And it's, it's helpful. It helps us understand other people. But all of a sudden we go, oh, you're an eight. 
Oh, that explains it. Oh, my gosh. Did you hear what she said? She is such an eight. Oh, my gosh. That is such an eight thing to say. Oh, man. Can you believe it? Or someone says, I'm an introvert, and it's a Myers-Briggs personality profile, and you're like, yes, that makes so much sense. Now I get it. I, I, I just thought you were so cold, but you're an introvert. That makes sense. Okay, it's right here. Now I know everything about you. I know the way you see the world. Okay, because I know one thing about you, so my brain starts to create a narrative and write a story about you. Or maybe it's this. Okay, this person, got it. Okay, this person's from the Midwest. Okay. Oh, yeah, don't you know. Let's, let's, uh, let's go out on the boat and have some hot dish. Uh, you probably, uh, I know that you root for Minnesota sports teams. I know that you've probably had your heart broken for 41 years by the Minnesota Vikings. Uh, hypothetically, I'm just saying. Yeah, I know about you. You're from the, oh, you're from, you're from the South. Okay. All right. I know about you. I know how you view the world. I know probably your belief system. I probably know who you voted for uh, because this is from, I know where you're from. Oh, you're from Canada. A. Eh? That's all it says. A. Eh? And sorry. And here's what we do. We can do this in a snap. We just, we go, oh, oh, you're from there. Oh, Oh, you, you like those sports teams. Got it. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Yep. No, I know who you are. Got it. And our brains write a story to explain relationships and to explain people. And sometimes it's even, oh, oh, you're a Democrat. Got it. Oh, you're a Republican. Okay. Okay. Got it. And we've done that a lot in the last 18 months. And we've reduced people to this. And we're tempted to do the exact same thing with far more serious consequences in far more serious categories like skin color, sexual orientation, political party, religious belief, relationship status, and a whole bunch of other things. And we know that one particular data point about them, and we've got the cue card, and we go, okay, got it. I, I, I think I could sum you up. And you just give me one or two data points and a little bit of information in our brains. Go, okay, I know this person. I got it. Think no more. I got it right here. And, you know, this is who you are. And, and I know who you are. And I know what you think. And I know probably what you believe about the world because I've got all that information right here. And we don't only do this with strangers. We do this with our loved ones, don't we? And you would think that we wouldn't do this with our loved ones because, well, we already know them. We know them really well. So why would we make assumptions about people that we know even better? But the truth is, the fact that we know them even better just means that our assumptions become even more deeply entrenched. Because don't you do this? Don't we do this? It's just human nature that even with my spouse, when my spouse says something or does something, and I'm like, why did, why did they say that? Why did they do that? I'm writing a story in my head to explain what they're, where they're coming from. And I go, wow, what's... What's her problem? What's his problem? <laughs> Clearly, this is what they think. And we misunderstand the situation, but we just write a story to explain what they said to us or what they did or the decision that they made, and we continue to write a narrative in our minds about them. And it becomes even more deeply entrenched. And we do it with our spouse, and we do it with our family members about their tendencies and about their relationship decisions and about their job choices. And we even do it with people in the workplace about their, their work ethic and their workplace tendencies and habits. And we write a narrative about them and we go, oh, okay. I, all right, I know you, Jim. All right, yeah, got it right here. And we've spent the last 18 months developing and perhaps even deeply entrenching this habit 
into our minds. And we have reduced people to a cue card. And I think we know that that's a problem. The, the capacity that the brain has to do this in everyday functions is incredibly helpful and saves us a lot of time. But when it comes to people, it's actually getting in our way of loving people like Jesus has loved us. It's hurting a lot more than it's helping. And here's, here's a couple of dangerous things that come as a result of reducing people to a cue card and, and just writing a narrative. The first is this. Narratives simplify what can't be simplified. It reduces somebody to a cue card. Somebody who's complex. Somebody who God says, I've created them in my image. And what we have done is we've taken somebody created in the image of God and we've reduced them to this. Think about that. And all of a sudden, their entire personality, their entire belief system, their entire background, all of the complexities of who this person is gets very, very reduced. It gets very, very simplified. And the moment we do that, we're in trouble because we almost certainly will misunderstand their intent, will misdiagnose their situation because you can't make shortcuts for people. And the person on your cue card never actually exists because people are way too complex to be boxed in and categorized in this way. And you've taken a complex human being with a complex backstory and a complex worldview and reduce them to a few talking points. And any time that we do this, not only does it pretty much ensure that you're never, ever going to uh, know that person, it's also pretty offensive. Because here's the truth. I don't mind when my mind does that for somebody else, but boy, do I hate it when they do it for me. When my mind does that and I create a narrative about somebody, it's like I don't even catch myself oftentimes, but man, don't you hate it when somebody categorizes you? Don't you hate it when somebody puts you in a box? Don't you hate it when somebody assumes that they know you because of one or two things about you and they don't know you at all? Isn't that the worst? And they prejudge you and they make decisions about you even though they don't know. You hate it when someone prematurely judges you or labels you and yet we do it all the time to other people and it's causing us to treat each other in a way that is careless and callous in the way that we treat one another. Because narratives simplify something that can, just can't be simplified. But here's the other danger. Narratives actually permit things that should never be permitted. Last week, uh, a lot of times on Tuesdays, it's, uh, it's dollar bowling day in Monticello on Tuesdays, just in case you didn't know that. That's uh, free... PSA right there. But a lot of times on Tuesdays uh, after school, uh, myself, my son, or a couple of my kids will go bowling. And so we, go, we were bowling this last Tuesday. My wife had one of my daughters, and they were at a volleyball game, and my other kids were with me, and uh, we're going to meet up afterwards. And uh, we're like, hey, we're going to meet up with some friends afterwards, and uh, let's uh, grab Chipotle on the way. So I get out the app, and I'm driving, and I give my daughters a order on the app on the way as we're driving. And she orders everything, and they say the wait time is like 90 minutes or something. It was like, like my gosh. I said, cancel that. Let's just go in in person, right? We're going to go in in person, and we're going to order, and that'll be a lot quicker. We get there, and line's not too long. We're waiting in line. We're waiting in line. We're waiting in line. And it has been a very long time, and I'm finding myself getting pretty irritated. And it's like the line's not moving, and I don't know what's going on behind the counter. Like, why, why are we not moving? I feel like the guy in front of us is ordering, like, 37 burritos for the office or something. What's happening here, you know? And I find myself getting a little irritated. I find myself, uh, you know, confession, full disclosure here, getting a little bit like, I'm talking to my son, and I'm going, ah, you know what? Like, uh, man, their service has really gone downhill here. 
And you may or may not be aware of this, but uh, I was the first customer at the Chipotle and Rogers, so I feel like I'm a big deal around there. <laughs> when they opened several years ago, yeah, yeah, I was the first guy there. So it's like, guys, do you know who I am, you know? <laughs> and clearly they do not. So, and I, and I found myself talking to my son and going, man, I feel like their service has really gone downhill here. Man, I, you know what? If this is what it's going to be every time, I don't know if I want to keep coming back here, you know? And, and what am I doing? I'm, I, I'm writing a story in my mind to explain my event, my experience. I get up to the front, and we finally get up to the front, and there is a sign right on the front that you couldn't see before, but that says, uh, we thank you for your patience. Everything is taking longer because we cannot find workers. And the lady in front of me says to the person behind the counter, you guys are doing such a great job. Thank you so much. And I just went. <laughs> Dang it. And I caught myself, because once I saw the sign and once I knew the situation, everything about my narrative was false. And it wasn't that people were ordering too much food and it wasn't that people were goofing around. It was just that they were shorthanded. And they've been shorthanded, as I've been a lot of places. And here's what's crazy. If you would have asked me ahead of time, hey, do you think that it is permissible to speak negatively about anybody? I would have told you no. In fact, the way that we should behave as followers of Jesus is that we should love everybody the way that Jesus has loved us. In fact, I spend a lot of my time talking about that. In fact, I do that for a living. And yet, my narrative gave me permission to speak in a way that if you'd have asked me before, I would say, I wouldn't encourage anybody to speak like that. Because that's what our narratives do. They permit things that should never be permitted. And that's the problem with narratives, right? Wait, you voted for who? Okay. Wait, you... You think, you believe in what? Oh my gosh. Wait, you, I can't believe that. I, no, I know exactly who you are. Yeah, okay. I know how you see the world. It's right here on my cue card. And your value in the world, or at least your value in my world, has already been established because I know one or two or three things about you and I've got the cue card and I know exactly who you are. And now, in just a moment, in just one instance, one, one blink of an eye, I, I, I've given myself permission to disrespect you or to insult you or to ignore you or exclude you or mock you. We give ourselves permission to devalue or abandon or neglect or attack or rob or excommunicate or disqualify or pass over or vilify or even make war with. Because suddenly, this is somebody who is not on the love like Jesus loved me list. Because I know all about them. I know exactly who they are. And they're not on the list. This is, this is us versus them now. And yep, I know who they are. I know how they see the world. And so they're off the love others as Jesus has loved me list. And I give myself permission to treat them as less than because a narrative in my mind has given me that permission. So I've simplified something that should never be simplified. I've taken somebody created in the image of God and I simplify them. And then that gives me permission to treat them in a way that I would never treat people if I was loving like Jesus loved me. And 
That's exactly what narratives are doing to us as friends and as families and as communities and neighborhoods. And it's exactly what narratives are doing to us even as brothers and sisters in Christ. That people within the church are writing each other off because of narratives. And I think we know that a narrative-driven marriage is not a healthy marriage. And a narrative-driven family is not a healthy family. A narrative-driven workplace isn't a healthy workplace. A narrative-driven neighborhood isn't a healthy neighborhood. A narrative-driven community is not a healthy community. And so we need to do our part as followers of Jesus to practice an alternative way of relating to each other. We need to do something different. And if we don't, we will continue to simplify what cannot be simplified and we'll continue to give ourselves permission to treat other people as less than based on the narrative that we've written about them. And we'll continue to reduce people to a cue card. And here's what will happen. We will lose the opportunity to be known for what Jesus wants us to be known for, that we love others well, because it is impossible to love others like Jesus has loved us with a narrative-driven approach to relationships. We just can't do it. And so for just a few minutes, I want to take a look at the life of Jesus and see how Jesus treated people and see how he saw people, because even a casual reader of the scriptures will observe this about Jesus. Jesus always operated outside the narratives. Jesus always operates outside the narratives. Think about a story of Zacchaeus. Uh, a, a, this is recorded for us in Luke chapter 19, and you can read the story this week. And Zacchaeus basically is a tax collector. And everybody knows it. Everybody knows what a tax collector is. In fact, when you read through the scriptures, you'll often see this phrase, sinners and tax collectors. Why? Because tax collectors had their own bracket. Like, there were other sinners, and then there were tax collectors. And if you were just a regular, everyday, normal sinner, you went to bed at night, and you, and you said to yourself, at least I'm not a tax collector. <laughs> because tax collectors worked for the Roman government, which were the, the Roman Empire, the oppressors. They were a traitor to their own people. As if that wasn't bad enough, they also cheated their own countrymen to line their own pockets. So, here's Zacchaeus's cue card. Cheater. Traitor. Despised. And everybody knows it. This is what's on his cue card, and everybody knows it. And Zacchaeus one day hears that Jesus is coming to his hometown. And so Zacchaeus says, I want to see this one, that, this Jesus that everybody's talking about, but uh, I know that the crowd despises me. I just want to be on the fringe. I just want to get a look. So he climbs a tree, and he's looking at Jesus, and he's watching as the crowds pass by, and he just wants to get a glimpse of this Jesus character that everybody's been talking about. And Jesus stops and he looks up in the tree, and here's what he says. Zacchaeus, come down immediately. I must stay at your house today. And everybody went, hold on a second. That's, Jesus, that's not your line. Uh, I think you're confused. Going to someone's house is a sign of friendship. If you're going to hang out with somebody in their house, it's a sign of, of unity and friendship. So, but Jesus, do you understand? This guy is a traitor, and he is a cheater, and he is despised. So I don't, maybe you're confused. I don't think you see the cue card. But Jesus always operates outside of the narratives. It's amazing. Another time, Jesus is outside the temple. He's in this outer court, and he's there, and uh, a group of people bring a woman caught in adultery. And they go, all right, Jesus, this woman was caught in the very act of adultery. So we all know what kind of woman she is, adulterer, sinner, unclean. It's right there. And Jesus, the law says that we should stone her to death. But what do you say? And Jesus looks at the men who are going to stone her, and he looks at the woman, and he's, he kneels down next to her, and he sees her. And he looks back at the men that are going to stone her, and he says, 
let any one of you who is without sin be the first to throw a stone at her. And all of a sudden, one by one, they drop their stones and they walk away and now it's just Jesus and the woman. And what happens? He looks at her and he says, where's all these people who condemn you? And she said, they're not here. And he goes, well, I don't condemn you either. Now go and leave your life of sin. Wait a second. That's, that's not on the cue card. Jesus, you're, you're going way outside of the narrative here. The narrative is she sinned. This is the punishment, right? You, you, if you do the crime, you got to do the time. I mean, this is just, Jesus, you're, you're going out. That's not your line. But it continues to operate outside of the narrative. We could talk about the man with leprosy that Jesus decided to lay hands on when everything about lepers says, nope, you're unclean. Don't touch. And Jesus touches a leper. And rather than Jesus contracting leprosy, the, the power of Jesus actually flows out from him and heals the man. We could talk about the Roman centurion who comes to Jesus and go, okay, Roman centurion, uh, oppressor. And he comes to Jesus and says, my son is dying and I need you to heal him. And you just say the word and I know it'll be healed. And, and Jesus doesn't turn him away. And everybody looks at the Roman centurion and goes, but this guy is an oppressor. He's a soldier. Uh, Jesus, what are you doing? We all know about the Roman Empire. And Jesus says, no, today your son will be healed. And his son is healed in that moment. We could talk about the woman that was brought to Jesus and she comes in to Jesus and she's a prostitute and Jesus should have kicked her out because this is what it says right here on her cue card, prostitute. And instead, Jesus doesn't kick her out, but instead he lets her wash his feet. Again and again and again and again and again, Jesus operates outside of the narratives. He doesn't buy into what everything, what everybody else seems to into. And everybody knew the narrative, but Jesus operates outside, and here's why. Jesus came to cancel sin, not people. It is precisely our narratives that have led us to this place that we're at in our world that has come to be called cancel culture. Cancel culture, where we write people off for something they said, something they did, regardless of their intent, and regardless of when they said it, or when it was, or how long ago it was, or even if they've changed since then. But as followers of Jesus, it's important for us to remember that Jesus came to cancel sin, not people. In fact, uh, in John chapter 3, Jesus is talking with a guy named Nicodemus. And Nicodemus is a Pharisee. He's a religious leader, and he comes to Jesus at night to ask him some questions, and he says, Jesus... Clearly you're from God because nobody could do the miraculous signs you're doing. Nobody could heal the people you're healing if they weren't from God. And so you must be from God. And so the thinking as a good Pharisee is if you're from God, that means that you're holy, that you're clean, that you're righteous, which means you've come to make sure that people who are holy and clean and righteous line up with you and that people who are unclean and unholy and unrighteous make sure that they know. Because that's what a good Pharisee would think. And Jesus... I'm clean, I'm righteous, I'm holy like you, I'm a religious leader. That's what you and I have in common. And then, there's, then I, I see people out here who are unclean and unholy and unrighteous. And so since you're from God and you're holy and you're clean and you're righteous, you must have come for people like me. We match up. I mean, our cue cards, they look good. And Jesus, here's his response. God did not send his son into the world to condemn the world, but to save the world through him. He says, Nicodemus, you've got it all wrong. I, I, don't, I don't know what's on the cue card or what you think I've come to do, but I didn't come to condemn the world. I didn't come to find the people with the cue cards and say, you guys are out and, and you're in. 
I came to save the world. I came to rescue people. If we're not careful to drop our narratives and see people the way that Jesus sees people, then we are in danger of making people think that the message of Jesus and the message of the church is to make sure that you know what's on your cue card so that you are on the outside. And the message of Jesus is to condemn, and that isn't the truth at all. The message of Jesus is that the good news of Jesus is that he came to save. He came to rescue. And that means that I was separated from God, but now I'm connected. That means I used to carry the weight of guilt and sin and shame, but now I am forgiven because of the sacrifice of Jesus on the cross. It provided forgiveness of sins once and for all. And that's why the Apostle Paul later explains it this way. He says, anyone who belongs to Christ, this means that anyone who belongs to Christ has become a new person. The old life is gone. A new life has begun. That's why we celebrate water baptism. It's why we're doing a worship night tonight and celebrating water baptism tonight, which if you have not been baptized in water since you were an adult and you started following Jesus, I'd encourage you to come tonight and get baptized. Because all we're doing is saying this, the old is gone and gets buried in a watery grave, and then we rise to new life. A new person comes up just as, uh, just as Jesus resurrected from the dead. We are resurrected to new life. And water baptism is a way to celebrate that and, and just remember what God has done for us. So don't miss this. When we become aware of our own brokenness and how much we will never measure up to our own standards, let alone God's standards, and when we decide to embrace God's love and forgiveness and we say, I want to make you the Lord of my life, meaning, God, I'm, I'm giving you the steering wheel of my life and I want to live life your way because I trust you. And the truth is that when my way of living life bumps into your way of living life, I'm going to go with your way of living life because I trust your way is better. When we do that and we submit our ways to God's ways, in that moment, by God's amazing grace, the old is gone and we're made brand new. That means we're no longer defined by what we've done, by ra but rather we're defined by who we have become, who we now belong to. And so you can see why it's dangerous for those of us who have experienced the love and grace of Jesus, for those of us who have experienced the forgiveness of Jesus, you can see why it's dangerous to define other people in that way, to reduce them to a cue card. Why it's so dangerous to write a story in our minds about people created in the image of God. Because the you next to you is more valuable than your potentially flawed and incomplete view. And even more importantly, Jesus died for everyone. All he asks is that we love everyone. Jesus died for everyone. All he's asking us to do is love everyone. Every single one of us, whether we realize it or not, at one point or another in our lives, we were at odds with God because of our sin. At some point in our life, we didn't measure up to our own standards, let alone God's standards. And at some point in our life, every one of us, that meant we had broken connection with God and oftentimes broken connection and community with each other. And in fact, we were working against God with our attitudes and our desires and our pursuits and our character. And he accepted us and he invited us into his family and he didn't look at us through the lens of our sin. He didn't look at the cue card and go, nope, sorry, you're out. Nope, you've sinned. Nope, broken. Nope, abandoned. Nope, sorry, you, you don't make the cut. In fact, he didn't look at us through that at all. He refused to read what the cue card said about us, and he looked at us through the lens of his love. And the apostle Paul writes this, but God showed his great love for us by sending Christ to die for us while we were still sinners. While the label said sinner, Jesus didn't wait and go, you know what? When you guys clean up your act a little bit, then I'll come. 
While we were still sinners, while the cue card said everything about us, Jesus died for us. When the cue card reads sinner, God says, nope, forgiven. And when the cue card says broken, God says made new. And when the cue card says orphan, God says, nope, that's a child of mine. And when the cue card says abandoned, God says, nope, I know your name. And when the cue card says loser and will never measure up, the cue card says more than enough. When the cue card reads that you're so messed up and you'll never dig yourself out of the hole that you somehow got yourself into, Christ died for us while we were still sinners. Because he always operates outside of and rewrites the narratives in our lives. And he's just asking us to do the same for the people that are created in his image. Because he died for everyone. He's just asking us to love them. And Jesus says, you want to know why I treat people so differently than you? It's because I see people differently than you. And where you see a narrative, I see a new beginning. Where you see a narrative, I see new life. I see the old has gone and the new has come. So why don't you drop your narratives and come and see what I see? And that is the invitation in front of us today. That's the invitation in front of you and in front of me to see as Jesus sees. And that's a decision that we can make right here and right now. We can decide to trade our narratives for new beginnings and to start to see people the way that Jesus sees people. Because here's what will happen if we do that. When you see people the way Jesus sees people, you'll treat people the way Jesus treats them. When you start to see people the way that Jesus sees people, then you'll start to treat people the way that Jesus treats them. Here's a very practical way to put that into practice. Each week, we've encouraged you to do this in one of the different areas of your life. So week one, we said this. It's all about words. And would you consider one arena of your life, and in that one arena, would you find one relationship? And would you give five life-giving words for every one negative word? And that if you would do that, it would make, man, it would make your marriage better or it would make your parenting better or it would make your workplace better or your community better. And then last week we talked about conflicts and grudges. And we said, what if in one arena of life and in one relationship, you just determined, you know what? I am going to return evil with good. And when they do something to me, I'm just going to do something good back. And when they do evil to me, I'm going to do good back. And I'm going to forgive quickly and I'm going to speak well of them and I'm going to pray for them. And that would change your relationship. And that would change you because you would love as Jesus has loved you. And so this week, as we wrap up the series, I want you to do one more thing. Find one arena of your life and one relationship in that arena of your life. And I'm going to ask you to simply get to know their story. I think if you get past this and you really get to know somebody's story, what happens is you'll start to see people as Jesus sees people. And no longer will you reduce people who are created in the image of God to a cue card. And no longer will you categorize them and put them in a box. And it doesn't mean you'll agree with everything, but it means you'll understand where they're coming from. And they'll understand where you're coming from. And it opens the way for us to love like Jesus has loved us. And if you're a follower of Jesus, if you're somebody who's experienced the love and grace and forgiveness of Jesus and you've submitted your life to his way, we must do this because this is our story. While we were still sinners, Christ died for us. And he's asking us to do the same for the people created in his image. So if you're here today and you go, you know what? I don't know if I've ever said yes to following Jesus. You need to know that God is building a family and he wants you in it. If you're watching online and you don't know where you stand with God and you go, I don't... I'm not sure where I stand. I'm not sure what's on the cue card. I'm not sure what God thinks of me. Here's what you need to know. God is building a family and he wants you in it. 
Jesus came into the world to break down the barriers, to destroy the narratives that we think about ourselves and others and invite you to be a part of his family. In the ultimate expression of love, he allowed himself to be put to death. His body was laid in a tomb. And according to multiple eyewitness accounts, he rose from the dead. And now you've been invited. And you don't earn your way in. You don't behave your way in. It's an invitation that has been extended to every single one of us. And if you've never said yes to that, you can do that by just agreeing yes with this prayer that we pray in just a minute. For the rest of us, maybe you'd say this. You know what? I need to learn somebody's story. I I do this too much. I've reduced people to a cue card. And I've simplified something that should never be simplified. I've taken somebody who's created in the image of God, a complex creation, and I've simplified them to a couple of data points. And as a result of that, it's, I've given myself permission to treat people in a way that I know I shouldn't treat people. Would you just say, you know what? I'm going to learn somebody's story this week. I'm going to find somebody that maybe I disagree with, maybe somebody that I've reduced, and I'm just going to hear their story, and I want to learn more about them because I want to see people the way that Jesus sees people. And if you want to say yes to following Jesus, just agree with this prayer. God, please forgive my sins. Forgive me for the times that I've walked away from you. I've kept you at arm's distance. I thank you that you never walk away from me. And I want to say yes to this invitation to be a part of your family. Make me your son. Make me your daughter. And help me to follow your way of living life as best as I know how. And God, for every single one of us, there is a temptation for us to create a mental shortcut to write a story, to write a narrative about people in our own minds. And when we do that, we simplify somebody who's been created in your image. And, and when we simplify them, we, we give ourselves permission to treat them as less than. And so I pray that you would help us to see people like you see people. And when we see people the way that you see people, we would treat them the way that you treat us. We commit this week to you. We pray this in your name. Amen.